Well, today we are continuing in our series of messages entitled Lessons from the Life of Daniel. The book of Daniel has two different genres, end-time prophecies and stories. For this sermon series, we'll be focusing on the stories of the eight stories, six reveal characteristics that we are to emulate as the prophecies are being fulfilled, and two reveal characteristics that we are to seek to avoid as the prophecies are being fulfilled. So there's two different genres in the book of Daniel, the prophecies, and then there's stories. There's eight stories, and six of them have to do with characteristics that we are to seek to emulate or to seek to have as the prophecies are being fulfilled. And then two of them are stories that we are to avoid or characteristics that we are to avoid as the prophecies are being fulfilled. And today is one of those stories, one of the two that we are to seek to avoid, the characteristics that we are to seek to avoid. So open your Bibles to our chapter of study today. It's Daniel chapter 4. It was our scripture reading that Jimmy gave. And let's go to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 4. While you're turning there, this is the only chapter in the book of Daniel that was not written by Daniel. All the other chapters were written by Daniel, but this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar. It is a personal testimony of how the Lord reached his life, and you can see in your study guide, one preacher refers to this chapter as insomnia, insanity, and insight. So in the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar has insomnia, then he has a bout of insanity, which leads to his insight. One person said this has to do with his reign, his ruin, and his revival. It's interesting how preachers come up with this alliteration. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in the dream, he has a dream of a tree. We had a children's story about apple trees. Now, we don't know what type of tree this was, but this was a tree that reached up into the heavens. It was massive. It could be seen from any place on planet Earth. This was a tree of epic proportions, and the birds would build nests in it, the fruit was in abundance and provided for the inhabitants of earth. And in the midst of this vision or this dream of this magnificent and glorious tree, a watcher comes down from heaven. And the watcher looks at the tree, this person, this being, looks at this tree and says, hew down this tree, cut it down, but leave the stump and the roots until seven times or seven years be passed, and let the man's heart be replaced with that of an animal. 
So this was a very troubling dream, and you can read the story in Daniel chapter 4. He gets up and he asks the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers to come in before the king and say, what is this, or what does this mean? What is the interpretation of my dream? Remember in Daniel chapter 2, they weren't able to give the dream because he had forgot it, but this time they had a better opportunity and they failed, so he calls in Daniel. And the Bible tells us that when Daniel heard the dream, he stood there stunned. And Nebuchadnezzar could tell that this was troubling him, so he told him, look, please tell me the interpretation. Um, I'm, I, I really want to know what the interpretation of this dream is. And, Nebu- and Nebuchadnezzar is told by Daniel, this dream is for those that hate you and for your enemies. And he tells the king that this tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. And that Nebuchadnezzar had been given dominion and glory and honor by God, but because of his wickedness, there would be a terrible calamity that would fall upon him. He would be driven from the earth as a beast, or driven from the palace as a beast. Go down to Daniel chapter 4, and... Verse 24, as Daniel is given the interpretation, Daniel 4, 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now, that is a stunning warning that you're going to be a beast for seven years until you can know that it is God who rules in the heavens. Now, 12 months went by, and old habits die hard. And Nebuchadnezzar, you can pick it up, in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months while he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? for a royal dwelling by my mighty power, for the honor of my majesty. In verse 31, while the word was still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses that very hour. The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This is a medical condition that has manifested itself since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. This is one quote, Nebuchadnezzar apparently experienced lycanthropy. This is a strange disease that most standard medical dictionaries list as a form of insanity. 
In this disorder, people imagine themselves to be a wolf or some other wild animal. The disease seems to attack suddenly and disappear just as quickly. It is characterized by a total neglect of personal appearance. Hair and nails grow long. Sanitation and hygiene are neglected, and the individual crawls around on all fours, grunting and growling like a wild beast. Another quote here: "The proud king's hair grew long and matted like the ruffled feathers of a buzzard." And his nails resembled resembled the tailings of a bird of prey. Wide-eyed and gibbering, he plucked grass and, stuffing it into his mouth, munched it like an ox. If you imagine in your mind's eye this royal king, brilliant man, is walking in Babylon, in the royal palace, and he says, "Look at all this." This is because of me. And while those words are hanging in his mouth, a voice comes from heaven, indicating that the fulfillment of that dream was to be. And in that moment, you know, in my imagination, this, the king is walking with his royal subjects, and he hears the voice from heaven. And in that moment, his eyes go from the eyes of intelligence to the eyes of insanity. From the eyes of a human being to the eyes of an animal, a leopard, a beast, a wolf, whatever you call it, they just they just dramatically change. You can tell the elevator suddenly go, doesn't go to the top floor anymore. Instantaneously, in that moment, and this king, this brilliant man, is reduced to an animal. Gets on all fours in the royal palace, grunting and groaning and sniffing and snorting, going. And you can imagine the court is in a frenzy. It's chaos. They're going around trying to herd this animal out of the royal palace. They call an emergency meeting. What are we going to do with the king? He has lost his mind. Babylonian law, you cannot do anything to the king, so they probably corned him off in some part of Babylon where there was a lot of grass. And this king, matted hair, nails that grew long like hawks' talons, groveling and eating grass like a cow. Imagine walking in Babylon with your son. And your son's like, Dad, what is that? I've never seen that animal before. And you look closely, and you say, Son, that's not an animal. That's the king. And this happened. The Bible says, for seven years. Seven years is a long time. What was seven years ago? Two thousand eleven. How many generations of iPhones was that? I mean, 2011. Seven years. Can you imagine from 2011 to 2018 having this condition of insanity, and all of Babylon knew it? Before long, the word got out to the other provinces outside in the other territories of Babylon that the king had lost his mind. 
At the end of seven years, the Bible tells us, verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Scholars say that this is shortly before Nebuchadnezzar died. He gave this public testimony of his conversion. By the grace of God, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven. Amen? He's going to be in the kingdom. A few lessons that we want to draw from this. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar said, I myself have built by my power and by my majesty. A very egocentric person that's full of himself and arrogant. And it was while he was making this arrogant statement that this calamity fell upon him. And we're told in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord." There's something about pride and arrogance that is a condition that inflicts all of us. And C.S. Lewis says this, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride. Sometimes we can be so arrogant and not know it. And then we look at someone who's arrogant and we're like, oh, that person's so full of himself. But I'm humble. You know, we can be proud that we're humble. <laughs> pride. And John Wesley said, all pride is idolatry. Augustine put it this way. He says, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. It was what made Lucifer into Satan. Pride was the first sin, and it is what made the devil the devil. And another individual says, a person who thinks too much of himself thinks too little of God. One of the characteristics that we are to avoid by the grace of God in the end of time is pride. One writer put it this way of some warning signs of a proud heart, and uh, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we all are challenged with this, always thinks that he or she is right, is easily offended, does not like to be corrected, is often impatient with others, likes to talk more than listen freely, offers opinions, desires to be first or best, needs to be noticed, obstinate, 
toward authority, quick to find fault with others, bold to contradict others, demanding and hard to please, much more sensitive to personal desires than the needs of others, boasts about achievements. And, you know, if we're honest, we'll all say, oh, man, uh, there's a lot of guilt to go around in this particular area. And on God's top seven list of deadly sins in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, do you know what makes number one on this list? There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Number one is pride. Yet in the Christian community, isn't it interesting that there are a lot more heinous sins that we point out than pride. It's interesting because in ministry, um, as a preacher, the Lord has his way of keeping you humble. It's a good thing. Anytime you're humbled, it's a good experience to have. I remember one time I preached a sermon, not here, preached a sermon. I thought I did a wonderful job. I was on that morning. You know, it's hard to bat 100 every Sabbath because it doesn't matter how well you've done before. It's you're up the next Sabbath, and sometimes you're just not feeling good. But on this particular Sabbath, I've thought, oh, I was on by the grace of God. Of course, you got to add that in there. And I walked out. <clears throat> Praise God, of course. And someone comes to me and says, you know, Pastor, that was a good sermon, but got to watch out for those because it just reverses everything that was said before. <laughs> you miss this particular area and call me. I want to give you a little bit of education. <laughs> I was like, <sighs> not at this church, don't worry. And then I go home. A few days later, I get an email from that same congregation. It was a great sermon, but you are hypocritical in not following your own advice for the duration of the sermon. And I was like, whoa. And I wanted to respond, but I didn't. And those moments where you are humbled are really precious moments in the Christian experience. In those moments when you realize your own mortality and your own flat spots and your own challenges and you realize that you are inadequate that's a good place to be. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's the first part of the Christian experience. Blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty. God can reach people that say, I have a need. But God 
has a difficult time reaching people that say, I have everything and I don't need God in my life. When we look at this story, what did it take to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention? I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? What did it take to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention? And here's the answer. Seven years as a beast. Think about the implications of that. This is what we call extreme intervention. You ever have an intervention with a family member? They're, they're on a path toward destruction, and you get around with a, your family, and you have an intervention. This is what we call extreme intervention. In other words, the only way to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, because he was so full of himself, so proud, so arrogant, was to be humbled in this way. Seven years, groveling and eating grass in Babylon in front of his whole kingdom and his subjects, humiliation. And it took that to knock some sense into this man. And here is the thesis of our message today. Sometimes the worst thing that's ever happened to us is actually the best thing that's ever happened to us. Let me read that again. Let let me personalize it. Sometimes the best thing that's ever happened to you is the, I should say, sometimes the worst thing that's ever happened to you is actually the best thing that's ever happened to you. Have you ever had something happen to you that was just like awful, terrible? And you're just like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Now, I didn't say everything, but sometimes there are situations and circumstances, calamities that bring you low. And you're like, this is a disaster. This is a calamity. Well, in actuality, that's the best thing that's ever happened to you. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's experience. This was the worst thing that's ever happened to him. But was it actually the best thing that ever happened to him? I think of a friend of mine. His name is Bryant. He's running his own business. Millionaire. Didn't want anything to do with God. Overnight, he lost everything. Business went belly up. The creditors literally walked into his home and took out all the furniture. And there he was. He went from rags to riches overnight. And he's sitting in his empty apartment now. (laughs) Empty apartment. And someone knocks on the door. And it happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist. (laughs) With a little survey saying, would you like free Bible studies? And he opens the door and he says, absolutely yes. Sign me up now. Long story short, he gets, I baptize him. (laughs) I baptize this man. And he looks back, and the worst thing that ever happened to him, losing his business, was actually the best thing that ever happened to him. You see, God has a different perspective of life than we do. We think of our lives in like 
80 years. That's the average American lifespan, 80 years, give or take. And you're like, oh, if I could just save enough and retire, I can enjoy, you know, just this part right here. And we think in those terms of 80 years, and we think of comfort, relaxation, fulfillment. In those 80 years, Lord, just give me 80 years. Well, guess what? God takes into consideration those 80 years, but he backs up, and he's like, eternity. Eternity. So he, he has the eternal perspective. And sometimes that eternal perspective that God has, he allows certain things to happen to us because David Shin, whenever things get comfortable, he starts to get complacent. He starts to get relaxed. He doesn't pray as much as he usually does. And sometimes the Lord allows discomfort into our lives in order to get our attention. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. What does that mean? That means that sometimes when we're in a pleasurable moment, when we're in comfort, when we're in luxury, we tend to not hear God's voice, but it's suddenly when we're flat on our back that we hear the voice of God. It's in moments of weakness that we realize our need. I have a picture on the screen of Richard Nixon there in the middle. Uh, to your right, you have Chuck Colson. He was known as the Hatchet Man. Some of you remember this from Watergate. I don't. But you remember this where the whole Watergate scandal came up, obstruction of justice, and uh, Nixon was impeached or was going to be impeached, and then he resigned. And there were seven individuals that were indicted on obstruction of justice, and Chuck Colson was one of them. And he was sentenced to prison just before his sentencing this is from his testimony i called in my christian friend up one night and said i like to come see you i drove over and spent an evening on his porch this was the august of 1973 this was right before he was sentenced to prison and he read to me from a little book entitled mere christianity by c.s lewis it was about pride and it described me to a t that night, when I left this gentleman's home, something happened that, I'd, that had never happened to me before. I was getting into my automobile, and I sat there, and I couldn't drive because I was crying too hard. I spent an hour on the side of the road, right next to my friend's home, crying, thinking about my wife, wanting to know God, and wanting to be clean. Here's the mugshot of Chuck Colson. He found the Lord Jesus through this experience. He was born again, and that's the title of his autobiography of his Christian experience, and he passed away, I believe, in 2012. But I think Chuck Colson considers that time in prison the worst thing that ever happened to him, but it was actually the best thing that ever happened to him. 
Do you know what God's number one goal for your life is? It's not your comfort. That's not his number one goal. I would say that God's number one goal for you is not even the American dream. Let's not confuse the two. God's goal for you is not to live in the suburbs, drive an SUV, have 2.5 children, and retire. That's not God's number one goal. God's number one goal for your life is saving you for eternity. That's his number one goal. Everything else is secondary, even your health. Your health is important, but your health is not his number one goal because he doesn't want you to be healthy and then lost for eternity. So there is a pecking order of priorities in God's mind, and God is looking at eternity, the total existence possible to man, and he says, look, uh, David is so caught up in this life, and sometimes he has to allow discomfort. Sometimes he has to allow trials, and sometimes he even has to allow pain in order to get our attention. We need to look at the total existence possible to man, and sometimes in our humanness, we think that this life, even as Christians, is all that we have to live. Well, I have news for you. It's not. This is a probationary life, a life in which we are to choose where we're going to spend eternity, and sometimes the greatest thing that can happen to us is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. I think about my own experience. I told you a few weeks ago that I was a very sickly child growing up. And I believe that the Lord allowed me to constantly be ill in order to keep me humble. Because naturally, I was a very arrogant child. I would likely not be in the ministry today if it wasn't for my human weakness. And I praise the Lord for that. Remember what Paul said, when he is weak, then he is, then he is strong. I think of this quotation in your study guide from My Life Today, page 18. If we allow our minds to be absorbed by worldly interests, the Lord may give us time by, what does it say on the screen? By removing from us our idols of gold, of houses, or of fertile lands. In other words, the Lord loves us enough to take things that we are grasping very tightly away so that we can have more time, more time for spiritual matters. We have this picture on the screen of Johnny Erickson Tata, or Joni Erickson Tata. She was confined to a wheelchair after the age of 17. You know her story, many of you, quadriplegic, unable to move from the neck down, dedicated her life to Jesus Christ. After this experience, 
And、uh, she's reflecting on her wheelchair, and she says this: "In a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old, tattered Everest and Jennings wheelchair." I'll think about the implications of that. That wheelchair represented her whole adult life of being immobilized, a quadriplegic. You would think that she would not want that wheelchair in heaven. Last thing I want to see. But she said, "I wish I could bring it with me." Why? I would point to the empty seat and say, "Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair. At that point, with my strong and glorified body, I might sit on it, rub the armrest with my hands, look up at Jesus, and add, 'The weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on You.'" The weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. Sometimes, the worst thing that's ever happened to us is actually the best thing that's ever happened to us. How has the Lord tried to get your attention? How has the Lord had? An extreme intervention in your life. Let us step back and look at the eternal perspective. And I have this prayer in your study guide. This is a prayer that I pray regularly. Lord, whatever it takes. This is a radical prayer. Lord, whatever it takes, save me. Lord, whatever it takes, save me. You're giving God permission, access, authorization, to say, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. And look what it took for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven by the grace of God. And look at the extreme measures of intervention. That it took to save that man for the kingdom, and I know myself. I am so hard-hearted and so just—I just don't get things. And I say, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. And if you want to go a step beyond this, pray this for your family and say, Lord, whatever it takes, save my family. Because we're talking about an eternal perspective. When we're standing with God on the sea of glass in heaven, we can look back at our time here in Anchorage, Alaska, and say, "Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord for that trial! Praise the Lord for that physical condition! For praise the Lord for that phys- for that financial bankruptcy! Praise the Lord for that!" Trial. Praise the Lord for that circumstance that that I thought was intolerable, because it was through that experience that I met Jesus. It was through that experience that I came to my senses. It was through that experience that I finally committed my life 100% to Jesus Christ. Praise His name. And we can say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for caring enough to going through this extreme intervention for my life. 
How many of you want to say, Lord Jesus, whatever it takes? Amen? Save me. How many of you want to say, Lord, whatever it takes, save my family for the kingdom? Let us pray. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you love us too much to leave us in our complacency, to leave us in our lethargy, to leave us in our lukewarmness. We praise you that sometimes you allow discomfort and challenges that we might feel our need of you. And we pray this prayer, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. Lord, whatever it takes, save my family. Wake us up, Lord. Bring us to our senses to feel our need of you. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.